Hello and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews that we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Eric Limbelson at his home in Portland. It's uh, July 22nd, 2020. Eric, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, first question, and most important for our purposes today, is why wine? Why wine? Wow, that's a big question, Rich. Um, wine, for me, wasn't something I intended to wind up doing. It was something that had some intention connected with it, but it kind of pulled together a bunch of different things that interested me in life. And I don't necessarily see it as an endpoint. It's a it's it's a interesting way station, and a, you know, part of my life. It's not the entirety of it. And so, to answer the question effectively, I think I'll just mention a few things that kind of captured the essence of it for me. One is um, in a world where people get more and more specialized uh, in terms of what they do. I think it was Robert Heinlein, a science fiction writer, uh, said that specialization is for insects. And I'm a firm believer in that. And you can be in the wine business and be super specialized, but I think it's um, it's friendly to generalists, and I'm a generalist. And you know, an offshoot of that is it's I I see wine as something that's going to resist. Um, it will continue to resist commodification to the extent that anything can in this world. And that interests me because, um, as I I've said a few times, you know, if we get to that commodified, fully commodified place. Um, you could grow corn or soybeans or anything, and that doesn't interest me in the slightest. So um, the, I guess what I, to crystallize it, there's still magic in it. And um, when magic goes out of the world, that's when I sort of get off the train. Um, I, I, there are, even after being in the business for quite a while, there are still things that um, that you can't predict, that you can't necessarily plan for, that uh, capture the essence of what makes nature so interesting. And um, and magic is probably the best single word I could use to to describe it. Um, and then maybe finally, it's been something that's drawn on parts of myself that I didn't even know I necessarily had or had any abilities in. Um, and that's an exploration. And, and so the exploration becomes as interesting as the, the goal, which mm -hmm. is, you know, to make interesting wines. So. Tell me a little bit about, about life pre-wine. Tell me about kind of growing up and, and, and heading off to school and some of the decisions you made at that point. Oh, uh, that some of that may be from um, stuff you have read that I've a blather that's exited my mouth in the past. Um, I wound up in Oregon uh, by a circuitous route. I grew up in on the East Coast in suburban New Jersey. 
Um, and there was something about that life that, I mean, it, there was something central that was missing, which was uh, sort of a direct, intimate connection with nature. Um, I have rarely been back to the town I grew up in, but um, it's the area is noteworthy for highways. You know, not, none of this will surprise you guys. Highways, shopping malls, um, more highways, and an extremely dense population um, without much in the way of nature. The last, the, na the last natural area in my hometown was mowed down for a subdivision when I was a teenager. And um, I wound up going to school in Vermont for a few years, a small college in Vermont, and then something beckoned to me. I had never been to the Pacific Northwest before and didn't know anybody here and wound up applying to transfer to Reed College in Portland. And, you know, when I got here, I literally, I, I didn't do a lot of um, deep dive in terms of homework to figure out where I was going. I just had this sense that it would be an interesting place. And I had heard some stories, which I will not repeat, because some of them are uh, probably not repeatable <laughs> on camera, but uh, about what to expect at Reed and what to expect in in Portland and in Oregon and I was never disappointed let's put it that way um, there's a lot of you know, this was a time when Oregon wasn't really on the map as the you know the groovy place to move to that it is now um, and the pace of life was slower and it was you know I can remember as if it was yesterday going hiking in the gorge and not seeing anyone on some trails, which you can't imagine these days, you know, even on weekdays in the summer, the parking lot's full. Um, I went on a hike in Southern Oregon in a wilderness area that I now own property adjacent to and spent a lot of time down there. And it was July 4th weekend. And literally the only people I saw all weekend were two friends of mine from Reed. Who uh, we didn't plan to be there at the same time. I just saw them on the trail. I was like, "Hey, how you doing?" Um, so there were things about Oregon that were just immensely appealing to a suburban kid from New Jersey. And what was the question initially? Sorry, <laughs> this is where I I really ramble. No, perfect. Oh, oh, well, it was background. Right. Yeah. So you know, I got off the plane, wound up at Reed, um, made friends immediately, and felt at home, which to me was sort of a, you know, it would be a to have within a couple of weeks have a connection to a place that I didn't necessarily understand rationally. It just felt right. And it felt more right the more I explored and, you know, saw the backyard that we all live in. And eventually I realized I was meant to be here for whatever that's worth. Mm -hmm. And I mean, for me, that's worth a lot. Mm -hmm. um, I have at times, sort of turned down, you know, job offers or job hints. Um, at one point, you know, I've been politically active off and on at times during my life. And at one point I was offered a job in DC working for, you know, a politician. Um, he offered me the job and I actually turned him down because I didn't want to live in DC. Because what, you know, what's the point of having a cool job if you come home and you're not at home? You're in some foreign place. And D.C.'s interesting, but it's not a place I would ever consider living. So, um, you know, much beyond that, 
um, I had a kind of motley connection, collection of um, interests in life, and I went from um, politics to law to sort of small business at times, had a lot of different jobs, but was centrally interested in environmental policy and eventually went to um, Lewis and Clark Law School after graduating from Reed and taking a number of years off and doing lots of different things. Worked in the Oregon legislature, uh, worked on some campaigns, worked uh, developing some small business ideas, and then uh, eventually wound up in law school studying environmental law at Lewis and Clark. And when I was finishing, I had at that point already bought a small piece of land about uh, 20 miles from downtown Portland. And uh, I was fortunate in that without really intending to, I had stumbled upon uh, great land. It was a little high elevation. The, the property is about a thousand foot um, above sea level. So at that point, it was considered too uh, too high to uh, ripen Pinot Noir regularly, but that's turned out to be incorrect. I had a hunch, and not you know I'm not the only one. Um, and so I wound up buying that property, which was really inexpensive. This was a long time; it was like 31 years ago. And when I was finishing law school, um, I wound up planting a couple acres a few years later, just sort of uh, at the hobby level, to um, to investigate a hunch I had about farming, uh, which I don't think anybody's farmed in my family since maybe 3000 BC, you know, somewhere in the Middle East. And so um, my family thought I was crazy, and maybe they're right, but, um, but it was steep learning curve, made lots of mistakes at first, which was the, the benefit of starting small is deer hit uh, your grapevines and, and munch all afternoon and you come home from Portland, which is, this is literally what happened. I built an electrified fence and I didn't do a particularly good job. And uh, the deer were able to get, I watched them, they went right through the fence. They, they sniffed the, the period of the, the signal, you know, it was one of those click, 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 and they waited for that period and they went right through the fence and didn't get shocked and they're sitting there happily munching in the sun and I come home um, from town from from work and realize oh I really screwed up this one but luckily it was just you know two acres um, learning by doing I found was a really um, suitable uh, approach for me and I didn't get it was a few years before I really jumped in uh, both feet big time I'm curious how you, how you kind of the transition in your mind from environmental law and policy to farming to farming grapes specifically. How did you get to why a vineyard? Why why not why why not plant something else or or, or grow something else? Yeah, I don't think I would have been really all that interested in uh, growing corn or soybeans or um, being a full-time farmer of a commodity crop because um, wine growing combines the farming, the um, the science part of it, which I never really learned formally, um, and the fun. And while I enjoy um, uh, I enjoy the the manual labor part of it, 
a lot without the magic part of it. You know, there may be some magic in growing corn. I don't want to diss um, conventional farming. But for me, when you combine all that with the business development part of it and the fact, look, um, for a period of time, um, you know, unlike in Europe where grapes are just part of your, your backyard, right? Um, it's, it's a lifestyle and, you know, wine is a part of a good meal and, and conviviality and socializing and what have you. Here, um, it's been, uh, you know, it's been turned into something that's, that is maybe a little overblown, you know. Winemakers are sort of cultural icons or have been. I think that's going to probably subside. Um, but it, it certainly wasn't hard to justify um, taking a career, sort of a, a turn out of sitting at a desk under fluorescent lights with a suit on, which is something that really appealed to me very much. And um, I do enough environmental policy work and activism in the rest of my life to satisfy that part of my brain and my soul. Um, doing it full time, other people are, I think, are probably just better than me at tolerating that. And I've been lucky that I don't have to do that. So, far away. So, the piece that I realized I left out when I was taking the leak just now, um, I was at a restaurant, uh, which is no longer around, called Zephyros in uh, Northwest Portland, 21st and Everett, I believe. And it was, uh, it was one of those restaurants where you go to have a nice meal drink some interesting wine, and then lots of uh, people, you know, people who you would only see at Zephyros would be there, um, you know, Governor Goldschmidt, governor of the moment, and various other types. And, and we ordered a bottle of uh, one of the early Beaufrere wines, Mike Etzel's wines. And um, I looked at my friend Rich at dinner, and we both had this moment where, you know, um, moment of recognition like whoa this is pretty amazing and it's made in our backyard and in my case um you know mike lived almost literally down the road from uh where i was living and i realized i might not make a wine exactly like this but this is a remarkable experience and i have an opportunity to make something really interesting um and you know, do it myself, interpret in my own way, and hello, and that's Natasha, and um, and and carve my own path, so to speak. And that's actually that was sort of a central moment. The next day, I called Mike, and uh, I brought the bottle home. You need to close the door. Okay. Um, I called Mike and asked him if I could come out and visit with him and eventually he relented. I mean, I was, I was relentless. I kept calling him because he was busy and eventually he said, okay, just come out tomorrow and you know, we'll talk. And I wound up spending um, a couple hours with him and that wasn't the beginning of the obsession, that was, but that was a noteworthy point mm -hmm. in the obsession. Um, his wines, I still regard his wines as some of the best examples of what we can do here. So. What did you take away from the conversation? Was that what 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 spurred you to think that you could that you could do it? Like what spurred you to think that you could you could do that? Oh, I already thought it when I went to visit him because, um, you know, what I've realized over the years is th there may be approaches to making wine and growing grapes that are unique or different, but 
there probably aren't any real secrets in the wine business. You know, the the, the best known secret is that you, know, you work hard and you have an attention for uh, detail, and you pay attention to little things that matter in the aggregate, and that's where you know your intention is converted into action is into results, and so. You know, I think what I took away was probably a, a little more detailed sense of the hands-on-ness of it. Um, when years ago, when when friends of mine and family from out of state would ask about what I was up to, and I told them, and they had this sort of embedded attitude that you know, in the wine business, you just you put your feet up, and you know, someone brings you a mint julep, and the work all happens around you, and at the end of the day, then you have this product in a bottle that you go and sell. You know, and and um, we've disproved that a long time ago <laughs> here because I don't know a lot of um, uh, successful wineries or wineries that make good product that do it by the joystick method. Mm -hmm. You know, it inevitably involves a lot of hard work and, uh, and that attention to detail. So that's probably what I took away from Mike. You mentioned planting the vineyard as kind of a kind of a hobby and, and keeping it small at and, first and, and making your mistakes. Tell me about yep. what prompted you to take that kind of leap in with both feet and, and, and expand into what, what it would become. Oh, it was a few years later. Um, I was having fun. I was having a really good time, and you know, I had I enjoyed things that I wouldn't have guessed I enjoyed, like um, you know, I don't want to overstate this, but uh, we were organic from the start. We didn't get certified for a while, but I had intended to be organic right from the beginning. And um, that first summer after planting 17 additional acres, I went from two acres to 19 acres at a different site where, where the winery is today, um, we had to hand weed. And I don't know if you have a sense of, you know, 17 acres is like most of this neighborhood. <laughs> and we, I was me and two Reed students. Um, unfortunately, they, I discovered after the first, um, first couple weeks that their efficiency decline after lunch had something to do with what they were doing with lunch, which was smoking a big fat one. And they go behind the barn and disappear. And they were, uh, they were a couple, and I thought they were just going there to, you know, hang out and make out or whatever. But they were, they were um, doing a big joint and then coming back and, you know, I spent the entire afternoon sweating and they were kind of, you know, lolling, lollygagging along. Um, I enjoyed that hand weeding, much as it sounds weird, but at the end of the day, I could see what we had done, you know, and we had to jump around because the weeds would pop up all over the place. But um, by the end of that season, I felt like I had accomplished something. I could put my hands on it, literally, and those grapes, I mean, it's a much longer story because we prepared the field properly. I didn't cut any corners. I did all the work myself with the exception of the really heavy equipment. You know, I had, I had the property ripped with, um, with a big tractor and I, I couldn't do that myself. I didn't own the equipment. I didn't know what I was doing. Um, but apart from that, I did it all myself. I did the research. Um, we literally sowed uh, 17 acres of cover crop seed, um, you know, bin by bin, and it took it took a while. It took like a week to so because I was, you know, I really paid attention to detail. We probably did way too much work, you know, compared to what I do 
would do today, but those are still some of the healthiest vines we've, we've had, you know, we've planted. So. Tell me about learning to, learning to grow grapes. Uh, was there anything surprising to you about the growing grape process, about uh, choosing varietals or, or, or the actual planting and growing process? Was there anything surprising? I think there were surprises all the time. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I started from a foundation of zero personal knowledge of farming and nobody in my family, I shouldn't say that. I, ha I had an aunt who just died. Um, this is, uh, I'm trying to think if it was this year or last year. It was within the last year and a half. Um, she was in her 80s and had dementia, but she owned a couple acres in South Jersey down in uh, Springsteen land, down near wherever Springsteen grew up. Um, and it was Englishtown, New Jersey, and she had a huge organic garden in her backyard, and she, she was a landscape architect. And um, I, she was inspirational because she was fully organic and she was reading Organic Gardening magazine back when nobody read that stuff. I went to visit her, uh, it was like three or four years ago, and she was in full-blown dementia, spent most of her day either in bed or in a wheelchair, and was non-responsive. She basically was staring off in space. I took her outside, she was in New Jersey, within view of uh, the Raritan Bay where I was, I was born in that town and my family was from that area, at least my mom's side. And the point of the story, um, I, I wheeled her outside and we, we went over within view of the water and there's some boats going by and her name was Isla. I said, Isla, I wanted to just let you know that you know, you, your organic gardening was an inspiration to me when I started the vineyard. And it was the only time in that visit she was looking down and she looked up at me and smiled and said, really, is this the moment? And then she went back to that state. But I, I did connect with her and um, I did uh, get some inspiration from that branch of the family and also I think from having two parents who were creative types and were open-minded about a lot of things and um, I bought the, uh, the the first property that I bought I moved out there that the two acre property which is now 22 acres um, uh, had hazelnuts on it and we had to knock the hazelnuts down eventually and get rid of them to expand the vineyard and my dad, who was not known for, you know, an awesome sense of humor, um, his, his famous line from that was, from nuts to grapes, rather than grapes. To, I guess you had to be there. But um, he found me very uh, amusing, being the only one in the family who would ever engage in anything weird like farming? What? You're growing what? You're doing... You know, I... Um, I got a lot of those kinds of questions from extended family, and uh, then it was only later on that I had product that they would call and take a, a, a momentary interest in the product, sure. especially if they could get a case for free. <laughs> How did you choose what to plant? Um, that was sort of just educated guesswork. I mean, I know I knew what I wanted to get as a result in terms of. Um, you know, ripening characteristics. I did not know a hell of a lot about flavor profiles. I learned that by by tasting. But back in the late 90s, when I was getting started, 
um, there weren't a lot of people who had the next generation of Dijon clones. Um, you know, they, they're old clones now, but 777, 667, uh, 113, 114, 115. There were people who had them. You had to look. And I would say virtually no one had any sense of what do you get when you plant Vadensville on volcanic soils versus sedimentary soils. Mm -hmm. And you know, what do you get when you plant Vadensville in the Anhill Carlton district versus, say, parts of um, the McMinnville district? You know, you, you get different lines, and it, you get, it gets much more detailed than that because it's site by site, right? But you can, you can draw inferences um, from other people's experiences, and there weren't, people didn't have that, that much experience, so it was a lot of meeting with people, tasting in their cellars, asking questions, and then, you know, most people, not everybody, but most people enough to think that they had, you know, the secrets. And people were very um, cooperative and very, you know, very much willing to work together because we all benefit from that. I things have changed a little bit. I think there are some people now with attitude, um, but I still think they're in the, the minority. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I learned by, learned by doing and paying attention and, you know, assuming for the most part that I really didn't know very much because I really didn't know very much. You, know. you mentioned Michael Edsel at Beaufort yeah. as a, obviously an inspiration with her. Who, who else were you impressed with, I guess, as you were tasting and learning in, yep. in, in the early days? Um, Doug Tunnell. I haven't seen Doug in a few years, but I used to see him um, regularly. And he spent a lot of time figuring out how to grow organically. Um, I'd say he probably spent more time in the early days than anybody. He also had a you know, pretty noteworthy career in something very different before he started uh, making wine. And so he was a, a big influence. I knew the Ponzi's from um, several previous lifetimes. Um, at one point, I, I dated a woman who was really close to the Ponzi family and had dated one of the Ponzi kids. Um, and if I have that right, it's a long time ago. <laughs> and, um, and so I was invited to family events. And they were very friendly and warm and open. And also, to the extent it mattered, which it did um, to me, politically, we were on the same side. I, I remember going to see a uh, Native American tribal fisherman whose cases went to the Supreme Court to establish tribal fishing rights back in the 80s. I mean, this is a big deal. He's a very quiet, soft-spoken guy. You could barely understand him because he had just been released from federal prison for catching five fish out of season. And he was in his mid-60s. This horrible case. The guy's name was David So Happy. And I, I turned around during his talk and um, Dick Ponzi was sitting behind me with Nancy. And you know, I had that experience more than once at various you know, events. And I had that experience a lot with folks in the, um, in the Oregon wine business uh, who were simpatico and you know, involved in the community. Um, but you asked specifically who. Um, well, eventually I got to know and worked with Eric Hammaker, who married Louisa. I, I got to know him through sort of mutual friends. Um, and respect his winemaking. Um, Brian O'Donnell at Belpont wound up being a neighbor. I mean, I got to know him because I bought the property next door. Um, um, I mean, I could give you a, a relatively lengthy list, but that would be sort of um, 
that that would be sort of the core. Um, there were there were a couple dozen other winemakers who I got to know pretty well. But so take me take me through the the next step, which I guess would be designing the winery and building building mm -hmm. a winery. What point did you decide that was something you needed to do? And take me through the kind of process of, of creating it. Yeah, it uh, was pretty early on that I decided, you know, I, I, I would say it was probably about the time I was planting that second block of uh, grapevines, the 17 acres, which became 29 acres of the next year. You can see where this is going. Um, you know, I realized fairly early on that at that point there wasn't an enormous amount of custom crush or I wasn't aware of it. And, um, and having a mom who was an interior designer and a dad who was an engineer and an inventor creating things was part of the background noise in the family and um, I wound up having a little bit of a knack for design that I didn't know I had and wound up really enjoying most of that you know dealing with the contractor the business side of it was a drag um, uh, for all the obvious reasons but the creative part of it uh, building design and sort of my nascent interest at that point in green design, which we didn't really do much of with the, with the building. I had intentions to do that, but this was 23 years ago. And, you know, there were people doing that kind of work, but they weren't that easy to find. But to answer your question, it, that played into the picture early and was sort of integral to the whole process for me because then it involved... Um, you know, some architecture, some winemaking, which I hired Hammaker to help me with because I really knew I had worked one vintage at that point. I really didn't know very much at all. And I had, you know, chemistry class was high school. Um, I won't go into that, but um, it, it had been a long time. Uh, you know, much time had passed and most of that stuff was gone. So, you know, I, I did ask for help a lot and I was lucky to find great people to work with. Mm -hmm. yeah. As you went into to, to, to design the facility, obviously you decided on a gravity flow winery, you did some kind of interesting... That was Hammaker's. <laughs> I think he wound up designing the building that, um, that he wanted to if he had had the budget and um, you know the intention and, and it worked well. You know, we, we worked well together. I'm not sure that was your question, but <laughs> <laughs> no, you, it answered it. I, I'm curious about uh, intention. Uh, as you had it built, what was your intent for the for for the for the winery? What was your intent for for the the brand? Um, I think my intent was to make great wine. Um, you know, Pinot Noir um, is is a fundamentally different experience than anything else for all sorts of reasons. You know, one being that the, the, the best Pinot Noir comes from marginal climates. Cabernet ripens, you know, that place south of us, California, and ripens all over the place. But to make great Pinot Noir, you don't want to be in a warm climate zone that ripens reliably every year because, especially now, you know, as uh, the, the effects of climate change become obvious, to everybody, not just folks who are paying some attention. Um, you know, we get more and more warm years, and you, you know, the years when your dog could make good wine are not the years when you make the best wines. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily the years where 
it starts raining on September 15th and doesn't stop until the following June. Those are not the best years, but somewhere in between, um, there's a narrow range. And, um, and I, that's not the only influence that's critically important, but it is pretty important. And it um, you know, certainly played a role in, there, there's a mystique around Pinot Noir that I think is actually justified because it is harder. It's more challenging to make great Pinot Noir than a great Chardonnay. Although we could talk about that too. You know that it, I, I'm I'm uh, uh, drawn to challenges, and you know that carries its own set of outcomes. But intention-wise, yeah, my intention was to make great wines and do it. Um, do it with some respect for place. I mean, that's, you know, this is all, these are all sort of um, things you hear every day in the wine business around here, but because I had moved here um, from another part of the country and because I had very strong attachment to place, it actually, you know, I, I'm drawn to the literature about place, um, to the mindset and to the life experience. Um, there are only a couple other places on earth that I've been, uh, that I have that feeling of home. Mm -hmm. um, you could probably guess one of them, uh, New Zealand, South Island. And then oddly, the other place that I'm drawn to is uh, Bhutan in the, in the Eastern Himalaya, because when you're hiking in the mountains there, you're actually at the same latitude as Miami. Um, but because it's high elevation, you find many of the same, I mean, the forest there, if you, you closed your eyes and you opened them and you were suddenly in the eastern Himalaya, there would be places where you'd think you were here, you know, in the Oregon Coast Range um, or in the, you know, forest primeval and what used to be, you know, the old growth forest of the Cascades and the Coast Range. Um, I'm not sure where I was going with that, but anyway. <laughs> um, what was the biggest challenge to getting a wine business started at that point? You know, um, the challenges that, my challenges have been around um, sales and marketing. <laughs> because to me, branding was something you did with cattle, you know, that, that nasty habit that they have. Um, I, I didn't have any business background and my attitude about sales and marketing could probably be summarized in, you know, if you make great wine, they will come. Mm -hmm. They, whoever they are, will come and buy it. Um, I didn't give a lot of thought to it. And eventually I think that caught up to me because we wound up with a lot of uh, the, the the theory was that site diversity is important. It was based upon, ultimately, it was based upon sort of a European model of small, small parcels in different places giving you a lot to work with in the winery. And that's a great theory until you get to the place where all the vines are mature and they're producing at, you know, two to three tons an acre and you have to sell all that stuff. And that's where things get um, challenging. Can you let the scrofula? Out, she is desperate. <laughs> Come here. 
anyway, um, yeah, uh, I, I still don't know much about um, sales marketing and sales and marketing and branding. Um, I'm learning as I go, but I'm definitely not. Um, I'm not the best self-promoter. Let's put it that way. What was your, you, you had talked about some of the people who had influenced you and some people you were meeting in the industry. What mm -hmm. was your sort of impression of Oregon wine as, as you were getting into it? What, what did the industry look like? Was it, what was its, what did it look like from the outside? What did it look like from the inside? I didn't really have a good sense of what it looked like from the outside because I did jump in, you know, over the course of a couple of years, I went from zero to 75 or 80. Um, you know, what, what it looked like as a consumer, limited amount I could say is it was friendly, accessible, and had uh, strong influences from sort of the back to the land uh, hippie thing, which I was certainly entranced by. Um, and, you know, I'm sort of reminded of um, in in those early days, and I think we're we're not necessarily in a completely different world now. You could walk in off the street and talk yourself into a job at a lot of places and have a great experience. I'm reminded one of my favorite actors who died a few years ago, Peter O'Toole, mm -hmm. um, um, Lawrence of Arabia, various other movies. He was interviewed by Terry Gross about 20 years ago, and they when he died, they re replayed the interview and he literally hitchhiked on the on a truck into London from where he lived out in the boonies somewhere and walked into you know one of the one of the most famous theaters in the UK I don't remember the name because I'm not in that world and talked his way into uh, an audition and then a role in a you know you know in a great production mm -hmm. in London I don't think you could do that today I have my doubts, and you know, Oregon still had that um, accessibility thing, which was very appealing mm -hmm. to me. You know, Etzel, I think, probably Mike regarded me as kind of an odd duck who was a pest, um, and I got to know him, and you know, he was friendly enough. Once you get past that sort of I'm busy, I got a lot to do today. What do you want? You know, that thing. Um, but I wound up appreciating. Um, the first part, which is, I am really busy, but I will take some time for you if you mm -hmm. pester me enough. <laughs> Tell me about the, the growth of the business then, and, and I'm, I'm curious especially about sort of uh, developing your, your kind of philosophy along the way. What wine philosophy, business philosophy, how that all kind of coincided with what you were, what, as the business was growing? I think I, I don't know that I did a particularly good job at, at, at uh, adhering to or developing a philosophy. The philosophy was, um, you know, we're going to be straight up about what we're doing. We're not going to, you know, we're not pretending at anything in the sense of, you know, when I talk about sustainability, um, it's because that's actually what we do, not because I appended that to a, for example, a business model focused on value wines in the eighteen to twenty-five dollar category, and you know, making money by cutting costs in this way or that way, or you know, developing um, you know direct sales corridor. Blah, yeah, I, I honestly, um, it, all along, it's been. The story here is exactly what we say it is, and if you like what we do, um, have at it. You know, we 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 um, 
were generally pretty open and accessible um, even to this day and I think that that's beneficial to Oregon. Uh, that along with the the reality of scale is that um, what I'm trying to say is the climate and the um, the natural resource base here combined will not um, produce highly profitable vineyard um, businesses meaning you know uh, Cabernet producers in California that I read about uh, in the magazines that can ripen five tons of the acre and sell the stuff for you know six eight ten thousand dollars a ton all sorts of delusional architecture and that's probably changing now that um, the world is changing in fundamental ways but we will never be that industry that business and I think that's great because um, you know marginal um, marginal profitability tends to reduce the interest of large corporate entities in getting into and staying involved in the business here. You might have, um, you know, I think you're, gonna, you're always going to have some, some uh, interest by multinational corporations, but it's not going to be like California. Mm -hmm. I haven't been in Napa for a while, probably 10 years, but the last time I was there, it was, you know, it was like the, the high-end agricultural Disneyland model. <laughs> And I remember going to a winery along, was it 120, whatever the highway is there, the main highway that goes through the central part of Napa, and pulling off in a few places. And they had more people parking cars in the parking lot than I had total employees. And, you know, and I have, I read recently, I read an article recently about uh, Napa's challenges in the, in the immediate present moment. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and the uncertainty going forward, and the kind of values that people attach to land and fruit and wine, um, they're completely out of keeping with the reality of most people. Mm -hmm. And I don't know where they go from here, because there are only so many, um, you know, billionaires in the world. <laughs> To, to engage in those kinds of activities. Mm -hmm. And I think what's gonna happen is you're gonna increasingly lose a younger audience who really don't, they don't give a shit about the, you know, the glamor part of the wine business. They're looking to have uh, authentic, you know, the word you hear, authentic experiences. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's true, and I think that's great. I think that's, that's where Oregon should focus on um, because we're gonna fail dismally at, at um, at other approaches that are capital rich and mm -hmm. you know that rely on a world that probably is going to shrink mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. anyway. we've done a lot of these interviews as you know and and, and we've had a lot of people <coughs> cite Limbleson Vineyards as, a, as an influential part in, in their in their journey you're not just saying not that. just saying that no, a, lot, nice. a lot of people have worked so I'm, I'm curious uh, hearing that, what, what it means to you to be kind of an influence for, for a lot I of didn't know that. in the valley. I don't I, I yeah, I have to think about that one. I'm not sure I'm entirely comfortable with that news. Um, I'd be curious as to who they were. I'm not going to ask you. But, um, you know, to the extent that we've had any influence, I would hope it was um, around um, organic farming, um, authentic commitment to sustainability which is a, a radically overused word it's 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 used so often now that i don't think it really has a hell of a lot of meaning anymore thank you 
Um, she actually does not tolerate heat very well, like, like me. Um, yeah, and you know, we're we're. Uh, I, I don't want to delve too much into politics, but we are at sort of a critical moment in our in the uh, in the history of our species on this planet, and we have limited time to make the kinds of changes that we need to make if we hope to uh, um, survive and, and have some chance of of living on a you know I mean I think life on planet Earth continues regardless of our species but you know we'll either um, uh, finish what we've started in terms of uh, trashing things effectively or we'll figure out um, a different way to live and to the extent that I've had any influence if it can be in that realm of people thinking about um, um, what is the role of the wine business in the greater world because um, I think we can have as as um, businesses that are sort of a hybrid between farming and something else um, we have we have the possibility of influencing agriculture in positive ways. Um, you know, farming actually produces enormous nasty inputs um, in terms of carbon emissions, toxins in the environment. You know, you've got these... You know, while wine is a very small part of the larger picture, it's, it has an influence that's, that's much bigger than it's... Um, in its business footprint. Mm -hmm. And uh, people listen to winemakers in ways that they don't listen to conventional farmers. Uh, conventional farmers don't even register. Um, and so I think we have, a, uh, we have an opportunity and sort of a responsibility in the bigger picture to not just tell a story, to, but to behave differently. So I was online during one of these many days when we're all sitting around on our butts. You guys are probably not doing that because you actually have, have, you know, a project to work on. But I've spent way too much time online in the last four or five months. And I, I noticed um, an article somewhere about uh, the first generation of electric tractors, fully electric tractors. And, you know, having uh, filled many a tank with diesel and, you know, run it down over the course of the day and you multiply that by you know millions of acres it's it's a big part of our footprint and what am i trying to say i'm trying to say that i'm hoping will um will lead the way um in terms of our ability to tell a story that's based upon what we're really up to and not just something that's you know somebody from the marketing department says we got to do this you know, mm -hmm. convince our customer base that we're keeping up current trends, whatever, you know, mm -hmm. that kind of bullshit. So, so I, 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 I am curious if, if that's the, um, I can't imagine that. Um, it's hard to imagine that we've had influence uh, in terms of the winemaking part of things because there's so many good wines coming out of Oregon now. And there's more than a handful of small producers who are doing really interesting stuff, mm -hmm. you know. But that other side about the sustainability part, that's where I hope, you know, mm -hmm. hope we've had some impact. And on that note, uh, obviously you're involved in many things outside of wine. So tell us a little bit about some of the other, other projects, foundations you're a part of and, and, and the point. Water. Sure. And, um, I am involved with that, you know, 
relatively often as an officer of the foundation and the I mean I'm I, in September I'll be the rotating president for two years my brother and I switch off mm -hmm. um, every two years um, that foundation has only in the last couple of years uh, started doing significant grant making in the area of climate change uh, mitigation and adaptation so that is drawing me in um, historically we focused on um, spreading the message about the impact of invention and innovation on economic development and since my dad's death my brother and I uh, started a international program that focuses on the benefits of innovation to the developing world and we have programs we've had programs in Peru and other parts of Latin America in Kenya and Tanzania um, in India and Nepal not so much in Nepal, we've had a few grants in Nepal, and then um, episodically in other parts of the developing world that have, uh, you know, have had various focuses at various times. We've experimented with what works in the developing world because um, innovation plays an important role globally in development, but it's impact on specific economies is widely divergent depending on the legal system depending on um, you know what what the source of uh, income is for people in in different countries and you know does does the culture support innovation broadly and you know we came into uh, the game with some theories but without a lot of um, you know we didn't have history in that area and so we've been experimenting with a lot of different models, mm -hmm. but the goal is to improve living standards for the uh, bottom rung of the economic ladder, and we've been doing that work since 2001. So it's not, you know, it's not something that we, again, that we glommed onto in the last few years under influence, outside influences. But my brother and I have both spent a lot of time in the developing world, and that that was the source of that interest. Um, more. To the point, though, um, I have a small foundation that's based in Portland. Um, we've been around for about 10 years, and we focus on climate change adaptation, climate justice, and uh, the developing world. But the truth is, we really we focus on the Eastern Himalaya. Um, we, my board of directors, is composed mainly of friends from college and law school. Um, close friends, people I've known for a very long time, and we decided about 10 years ago that we would focus on um, the Himalaya region for all sorts of reasons. It's the, you know, it's the roof of the world, it plays an outsized role in terms of regulating climate, um, the population is generally pretty poor, and they're being asked for good reason to sacrifice some economic development for uh, the greater good. And you know these are countries with maybe three to five percent the income of this country, and they're not responsible for causing climate change. Um, so I feel that we have sort of an obligation to help them in the transition to different ways of doing things. We chose Bhutan. Um, it was about six, seven years ago. That was a little longer than that um, because they've done 
for a, a very small country with a small population, um, they've done a remarkable job at both preserving their backyard in a in a meaningful way. Um, by that I I mean. 60% um, of the country is mandated to be primary forest forever in its constitution. Wow. So that's a, you know, that's a strong commitment. It's not, oh, let's set aside some wilderness areas and, you know, we'll, we'll go in and log them when we need to, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. They've actually, they have huge protected areas with um, immense uh, wildlife base. They have the last, um, some of the last healthy tiger populations in the world. And snow leopards, which are, you know, there's only a few hundred snow leopards left. Um, I serve on the board of another organization called the Bhutan Foundation, which helps funnel Western money into Bhutan for development projects. And the executive director of that organization is, the, is a global snow leopard expert, for what that's <laughs> worth, um, and tigers. And uh, I get to mingle with some really interesting, committed folks um, in a country that's uh, Buddhist to the core and serious about cultural preservation and um, it's it's there's no other place like that country on earth um, and you know time will tell if the culture survives intact um, because there's a lot of pressure economic development is pretty rapid but they're they're hewing to the um, the conservation ethic pretty closely and they have a concept called, it's not a concept, it's actually a fundamental part of their development strategy called gross national happiness. They measure, rather than me measuring for GDP, you know, you measure cluster bombs and, you know, Boeing and Lockheed Martin and then things that are destructive, um, they all get measured as, you know, positive increases in economic output. Bhutan actually measures things like how much time do you get to spend with your family? Do we provide adequate primary health care for, for the entire population? Do kids have the opportunity to go to graduate school if they work hard and do, you know, merit-based, they do well as undergraduates? And, you know, for a country with a limited amount of resources, and uh, they've had to, you know, they have had to ask for development assistance for decades. They're doing pretty well. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm maybe a little bit naive, and a little bit optimistic, but, um, but it, it's a great place to work if your, um, your attitude is, is appropriate. Mm -hmm. you know, we bring resources in and we connect them with information, but we're, we're not there to tell people what to do because mm -hmm. that's mm -hmm. um, you know that model has been tried and has failed over and over again still still happening but anyway so that's um, another area that I do that that actually occupies a good chunk of my time in normal times mm -hmm. meaning that when we're allowed to travel places mm -hmm. um, the, the borders closed and there's no uh, no evidence that they're going to open them anytime soon because they're they're really seriously trying to control mm -hmm. uh, the virus with the two largest countries on earth in terms of population literally on their borders. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. um, but that focus that focuses on climate adaptation. Some focus on mitigation, but they're already doing the work by preserving their forests um, and. Um, 
that's a long-term commitment. Um, we've done some episodic grant making in, in other places, but mm -hmm. Bhutan is our main focus. And then I spend um, times like this, I'm spending time thinking about uh, the election and, you know, I think we have an opportunity to change course once again. And if we blow this one, uh, don't talk to me and don't talk to me second week in November if things don't go well. Because, yeah, I don't know where you row to at this point. Um, if you row, I think New Zealand is like mm -hmm. probably six months if you're if you got big biceps and you just keep rowing. Yeah, I, I honestly don't know what I'll be doing. I, I'm being sort of half facetious about that. Yeah, because um, you know, just in the area of climate policy, um, another four years, and we will have completely given up any ability to influence anything, mm -hmm. for good reason. Mm -hmm. You know, but yeah, you know, we could all talk about that all day. There's certainly, enough energy going in that direction. You know, negative energy. Mm -hmm. um, and beyond that. I have episodically done direct politicking in Oregon, but I'm in one of those periods now where I'm sort of, you know, doing stuff behind the scenes mm -hmm. quietly. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's a lot of admirable work and a lot of difficult places. I'm, I'm curious, uh, have you- Bhutan's a pleasure to work. <laughs> I mean, it's one of the most fun places to visit if you guys ever have an opportunity. Hopefully they open their borders at some point. Yeah. How have you felt like with the, the, the various foundations, your foundation, the family foundation, have you felt like you've had more successes? Have there been more obstacles than you anticipated? Have you had more setbacks? Or have you felt like you've been able to make some, some real positive differences? Um, the family foundation, I don't really know what our impact is. I know what we, people tell us, but you know, some of them are looking for grants, so they're sort of self-interested. Um, we're cited as sort of a small to medium-sized foundation we're in a we're one of the only players in that in that specific niche so i think we've had some influence i've certainly gotten to meet a lot of interesting smart people you know mm -hmm. certified smart people um we could move indoors if or we're almost there. okay we're good um the the karuna foundation which is the foundation that works in bhutan we're just very fortunate to be able to work there and i've been really lucky to meet the right people at the right time i was uh, i was invited to meet a member of the royal family six years ago in new york she's a sister of the current king and she uh went to stanford was uh study buddies with chelsea clinton um and has spent substantial time in the u.s so she's she's um she's very familiar with american culture and we hit it off right away and I had this idea for um, to help. They're they're building a law school, literally, like right now. They've been building it for the last couple of years, and the idea was to help them develop an energy-efficient campus mm -hmm. for the country's first and only law school. If the country only has has less than a million people, so I hope they don't need more lawyers than a single law school can generate. Um, and I flew into New York, had. Um, had a meeting with her for a couple hours and proposed this approach and she took it to her brother you know it's that kind of country the mm -hmm. monarchy is not in power but they have enormous influence mm -hmm. there's a parliament and a, you know it's a it's a representative democracy um, i was having a good day and I, the caffeine level was just right or something i don't know because she came away from the meeting excited and things rolled after that. And we had been doing grant making for three or four years, but we didn't have 
the sort of imprimatur from people that matter. And now, um, you know, given that it's a small country, um, we can be sort of a decent-sized fish in a small pond mm -hmm. and have significant influence. You know, what is the influence of Bhutan on the world stage? I don't know. It's, it's certainly greater than a million people would suggest. Mm -hmm. um, and I have this kind of vague optimism that they'll have influence on the developing world because they're, they are charting a different way of doing things and they have been non-aligned. It turns out that there are, there are three countries that I know of in the world that don't have diplomatic direct diplomatic relations with the U.S. North Korea, Iran, and Bhutan. And it's not because they don't like the U.S. I mean, the U.S. has a presence there, but because they've been formally non-aligned for years, kind of like India was. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And they do that successfully and manage to mingle with a lot of um, different communities around planet Earth. And the story they tell is a compelling one. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I feel, I feel good about the fact that we've been allowed to, to work there for a while. So what's what's next for you? What are, what are your kind of future plans as you look ahead? Um, um, I'm actually, oh boy, I don't know how much of this I should get into. I'm I'm looking to downsize the winery, um, and I might be, depending on what shakes, you know, something's out of my control. I might be um, designing and building a, a a small facility in the next two, three, four years that would be um, more suitable to the size that I would rather be at. Mm -hmm. We're just too big. Mm -hmm. um, but there are elements of that that are really not in my immediate control and um, I also want to take a pause now and see where things shake, shake out after this moment that we're in. Mm -hmm because um, I don't think anybody's smart enough to know really where things are going. Mm -hmm. And wine is a luxury good. It's not, you know, the, the cost of the product that we make in Oregon, it's, you know, when you add on all the levels of profit that need to be taken by various entities, it's, um, it's not something that people of, you know, low to low middle income can engage in on a regular basis, especially if you're organic and trying to do things right from, mm -hmm. you know, from in terms of the community impact of your wages and your health care benefits and all this stuff. Um, it, it still amazes me that we're allegedly the wealthiest country on earth and we're still talking about health care, you know, globalized health care for our population probably 70, 80 years after we started having the conversation. But, um, so, you know, I'm not gonna jump into that immediately, but if it seems like it's a smart thing to do, I might start a couple years from now. Mm -hmm. um, beyond that, you know, a lot actually does depend on the election results, because if things go well, there will be a lot of work to be done on the policy end of things, what's, in terms of what's necessary you know, the kinds of decarbonization of the global economy. It's, it's a huge project and I'm active with a couple organizations on that front and if the election goes well, there'll be a lot of work to do. Mm -hmm. 
you know, to make sure that that stuff, and I'm not claiming to have any influence on processes in DC, but, you know, I work with organizations that are, that will be doing some of that work. Mm -hmm. so. mm -hmm. And beyond that, I hope to have some fun. And, uh, you know, one of the big questions I was just reading about this before you guys showed up is, you know, it's on a lot of people's minds is, you know, what role does jet travel play in all these lifestyles that we lead? And, you know, what is necessary versus what is sort of over the top and out of control? And I haven't answered that question, but I need to because I hop on a plane and wind up in, on the other side of the earth, you know, three, four times a year. Mm -hmm. And there's an enormous impact. There's an enormous um, footprint from that, those decisions. And, you know, do I want to give up going to a place where I'm working, where we, you know, we do good work and people like, if you're not there talking to people, spending time with people, developing relationships, your influence is pretty limited. Mm -hmm. So I don't have an answer for that one. That's a tough one. Because I don't, I don't think we're going to have carbon-free jet travel anytime in my lifetime. I could be wrong, but that's, you the, know. The matter transporter is just, just days away, yes. right? Yes. Um, what about for the Oregon wine industry? What, what Again, you know, I'm not, I'm not I'm, I don't have any kind of a crystal ball. Um, I think it, it is one of those, you know, different paths can be taken from here forward. And, um, you know, it remains to be seen how much success Oregon will have at marketing itself globally. Um, you know, people people been talking about selling wine in China for years. I see no evidence that it's that Oregon is going to be successful at that. I know lots of people who've tried. We've made sort of, you know, sort of rudimentary attempts mm -hmm. over the years, mostly completely unsuccessfully. Um, you know, if we can't, um, we what we need to do is keep the reputation for quality keep a focus on small-scale production, because I don't think we're going to compete in the 15 to $20 Pinot Noirville. You know, there's, there's a few Oregon businesses that, that can do that, uh, apparently. Um, <laughs> now, there's only one that I can think of that's doing it uh, successfully. And, you know, there's, there's limited room for expensive wines in the world. I don't think the market for ultra high premium, you know, $75 Oregon Pinot Noir is going to grow hugely. Maybe I'm missing something. So um, I think we have to continue to, my personal feeling is the focus on organic and kind of beyond organic viticulture is where it thinks should be. And, you know, if you can if you can genuinely produce at a small scale at high quality and treat people, your employees, the way they ought to be treated because they're busting their butt for you, um, you have a story to tell. And if it's a legitimate story, if it's an authentic story, you know, maybe there's space for, for those businesses as time goes on. But again, you know, commodified um, uh, agriculture, I just don't, I don't see how we do that in here. You know, from many perspectives. Nor do I want to participate in that kind of world myself. So. Right. So the questions I have for you: Is there any, anything we I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover today? On um, the, on the I would side? want to talk a little bit more about climate change, but I'm sure you're talking to a lot of people about that. 
We are, issue. but maybe yeah. not some people who know quite as much as you. So if you if you have something you'd like to add, feel free. You're, I, you you're kind, know, of, kind of an expert on the issue. Yeah, I you know I've kind of hinted at it, but I do think you know it, we're at an inflection point, and there's not much time. And um, I used to talk about this issue a lot when I spent more time going to wine industry events, which I did you know 10, 15 years ago. I don't do much of it anymore. In fact, I do virtually none of it for mostly for personal reasons. But um, you know, at that point, it was like, oh yeah, yeah, we'll you know we'll deal with that later. A lot of people thought that way. Well, it's later mm -hmm. is now. We're actually way, you know, we're act actually at the tail end of later, and very soon um, it will be late enough in the game that uh, I'm skeptical that uh, that our societies will engage in the work that needs to be done mm -hmm. but there's still you know I'm still vaguely optimistic because renewables have caught up with and and sort of sprinted past conventional power sources in terms of the economics and um, if you had told me 10-15 years ago that solar costs would be competitive with coal without subsidies globally now in a lot of places, I would think you were completely delusional. So the fact that that's true and that Trump has spent three and a half years trying to promote coal and dirty fuels and has been, it's been spectacularly unsuccessful. You know, the last time I looked, the value of the public, the value of publicly traded coal companies, which is virtually all there are, they were down like 85 or 90 percent from where they had been, you know, five, ten years ago. And that's all market forces. So if you take that and you add a little bit of politics in, um, you, you can change the equation pretty quickly. Now, is that enough to get us where we need to go? No. We need to do a lot of political work and organizing. Um, and you know we're, I think how much have we spent like two trillion on, on on, uh, you know since four or five months ago, on recovery month whatever we're calling it, and I think the year the numbers I've seen the Europeans have committed about a third of their recovery money money to um, no carbon low carbon future, and we've committed zero, because of who's in charge, that needs to change, like yesterday. And that's why I'm saying, you know, you're hearing this from a lot of people. But if we don't do that starting in November, I think it's a little late in the game. Yeah. So I obsess way too much about that stuff. But, you know. People have to. Some yeah. People. It's important to have people like you doing that. Well, we all got to, you know, we all got to do something going into the fall, I think, whatever that means. You know, whether it's calling up your relatives in Wisconsin and convincing them not to vote for the dude, you know. Um, there's, there's, there's a lot of work to be done, but let's hope it gets done. Things are looking okay now. You know, if you had said three or four months ago, I was, I was in a pretty dark place a few months ago, but he's managed to do it to himself. I just finished the, uh, the, the book by his niece. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I read it in 24 hours, because it's, it's a pretty quick read. Yeah, I don't know if you guys have seen it, but yeah, it's um, it's very telling. What a sick puppy! <laughs> you know, I I almost I read the book and I almost had compassion for him. Almost. Almost. Not quite. I haven't managed to muster it, but anyway. 
So that's all I'll say about climate and politics for today. Well, I appreciate that. I appreciate you having us here and hosting us yeah. and, and telling us your story and your thoughts. Sorry about the sun. No, it's all right. We're, we're all good. We, we, we got warm together. We're all good. Yeah. Thank you so much, Eric. We really appreciate this. I would shake your hand, but we're not supposed to. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. Special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have assisted on our oral history interviews.